So we are in the middle of our Lenten sermon series on flourishing, this concept of human well-being and what makes a good life. So we've been combining what psychological research has to say to us and also what our faith tells us about not just how to care for ourselves when we're down, but how to really raise the bar so that we're truly flourishing. Some of you know that my son is a pilot, and so I love the analogy of, of the visual of a cockpit with all of its gauges. And even if you're not a pilot, you've all flown, I know you've peeked inside that cockpit, and you see all the gauges on the instrument panel and all those switches and buttons, and I, I, I can't believe that pilots know what each one of those things mean, but they do, and each one of those gauges tells a story for the pilot of how that aircraft is performing. So the pilot needs to pay attention and constantly be evaluating across that instrument panel at all those gauges to make sure that everything's functioning. Well, likewise, we need to be paying attention to all the gauges in our own lives to make sure that we are functioning well to pay attention to which ones might be sending us a little uh, red signal, a little warning light. So when everything is operating well and things are, you know, as they were designed and at peak performance, that's when we're flourishing. So our gauges, it turns out, include some really important factors, things that we can control, and they can influence our ability to thrive, even despite circumstances that may be challenging. As we've been pointing out during this series, just like a tree can sprout from a rock or a crocus can sprout up underneath a harsh winter snow, we can flourish even when we're living in the midst of some pretty hard realities. To flourish is not about avoiding tough stuff. In fact, we can be depressed, ill, physically challenged, and still flourish. Flourishing is not a new self-help movement. In fact, my hope is that through this series and reflecting on it as we all have been, you're beginning to realize that flourishing begins with God, it begins with a connection to spirit. So we've touched on a few things in the past few weeks that most researchers agree are critical to finding that life well lived. So we've talked about positivity, positive emotions, and what we can do to get more positive emotion in our lives. We've talked about self-compassion, loving others as we love ourselves. We've talked about how to cultivate healthy relationships and the importance of having healthy relationships in order to really thrive. And so today we're gonna to turn our attention to meaning and purpose. When it comes to authentic happiness, there are several pursuits to get us there, but the one we wanna focus on today is the pursuit of meaning. The pursuit of meaning and purpose always involves attaching ourselves to something bigger than us, right? In fact, I'd say the bigger the better. Something that at first blush you just think, well, I can't do that. I wouldn't even know where to start. Or, well, that's not mine to do. And I'm certain 
that that is what Esther thought this morning in our reading that we just heard. You know, she said as much when um, she, she was talking to Mordecai and said, I, that's not, I can't do that. You don't understand. Now, some of you are very familiar with the story of Esther. If you're not, I highly encourage you to go back and read it in its entirety. It's a wonderful story. We just heard a snippet of it this morning. But it's a remarkable story of a young woman who gets plucked out of a field of beautiful young women to be the queen, the new queen of Persia. Esther was Jewish, and she was raised by her cousin Mordecai after her parents had died. And as the story goes, one of the king's right-hand men devised a plan to kill all the Jews in the land. See, he despised them because he was from a different tribe. So he wanted them out. So he goes to his friend, the king, and he says, listen, there are people out there who are refusing to bow down to you. You shouldn't accept that. Don't take that. So you just give me the go-ahead and we'll get rid of them all he says. Now here's the kicker. The king had no idea that his beautiful new wife was Jewish. He trusted his right-hand man. He said, okay, go ahead. Gave the orders. The decree went out to all the land. Couriers were taking it to everyone who could hear that all the Jews were to be killed. Now, just as an aside here, I, I, I have to say, I, I love this line from this story. Chapter 3, verse 15 says, immediately after the decree went out, then the king and his right-hand man, Haman, sat down to a drink. <laughs> it goes on, it says, but the city was thrown into confusion. Right, like, isn't that just like some leaders? They throw out these, these callous decrees and the land is thrown into confusion, and they sit down and toast themselves. I don't know, that really struck me. Anyway, Esther's cousin, Mordecai. I'm telling you, you gotta read the whole story, you guys. It's a good, it's a good story. It's chock full of things. Anyway, um, Esther's cousin, Mordecai, Mordecai, gets wind of this plot to kill all the Jews, and he sends word to Esther, and he basically says to Esther, you have to do something. And you heard this morning Esther's reply. This is where it starts to get really interesting. Esther says, look, everyone knows there's one law that we have to live by here in the palace. And that is that if we go in to the king's inter inner chambers without being summoned, we'll be put to death. I'll die. And Mordecai says, don't think for a minute you'll be spared by staying silent. And then he offers this line that is my all-time favorite. He says to Esther, who knows, perhaps you were made to be queen for such a time as this. Perhaps you were made for such a time as this. Now, spoiler alert, Esther does go on to save all of the Jewish people, and her story is still celebrated every year on the Jewish holiday of Purim. It's a remarkable story. But Esther, like many of us, was initially prepared to say, no, that's too big an ask. I can't do that. I don't know the first thing about what to do. And she could have stayed there in the king's court, just eating figs and lounging in the courtyard and hanging with the other girls in the harem. 
But a life of purpose is rarely found locked away in a palace. The pursuit of meaning and purpose always involves getting outside of ourselves and focusing on something so big that we simply have to rely on our faith in God. The book of Proverbs puts it this way. It says, a life devoted to things is a dead stump. It's a dead life. A God-shaped life is a flourishing tree. We are meant to flourish. And to do that, we can't build our lives around material purposes. We have to build them on God's purposes. The theologian Frederick Buechner famously said, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That's where you're called to, the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. What are you going to do? What's your purpose? There will be a sense of peace when you're called for God's purposes because it will be where your unique gifts and strengths can be used to engage in the world. Now, if you're curious about what your strengths are, here's an idea. Ask somebody. Ask people who know you well. When I was first trying to discern my call to ministry, a wise woman said to me, pay attention to what people are telling you. You see, I think sometimes other people see you and see your strengths when when you can't. So try to see yourself through someone else's eyes. How do they view your strengths? There are also tests that you can take, of course, and I've told you before, I've never met a personality test that I didn't love. I've taken a bunch. But we've been referring to the work of of Dr. Martin Seligman, who pioneered this field of positive psychology. And he also helped create a test that's based on the science of character strengths. He says that when you use your, your best character traits, it can help you flourish because you're living out of a place of your strengths. And when that happens, you also improve your relationships, which we've been talking about. You enhance your health and overall well-being, which we've also talked about. It can help you manage and overcome problems as they come up, and it makes you more resilient. So I encourage you to try their their free test. Uh, The website, I think, is listed right here for you. And you can learn more about the science, even, of your character strengths on that website. Um, And just see if you're really living into your own strengths. Because the meaningful life comes from knowing your strengths and then using them to engage in something that you believe is larger than you are. There are all kinds of things that we can attach ourselves to, so be careful when you're engaging. The way that we can really discern where our gifts can best be used is to rely on God. When Esther was presented with the news about the plot to kill all of the Jews, she did not just run into the the king's chamber to make her case. That would have been a suicide. She instead instructed everyone to fast and pray for three days with her 
and to await further instruction. Why? So that she could spend time discerning God's direction for her. So here's what Paul has to say to us about relying on God in order to find our purpose. He writes this in the letter to Ephesians. He says, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Now let's just stop right there for a second. Hold up. Where do we find this out? In school? In, in our workplace? In our careers? In the self-help aisle? In our own smart brains? No, it is in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. That means we have to spend time with Christ. Okay, Paul goes on. Long before we first heard of Christ, he had his eye on us. He had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. There's that word purpose again. Christ is working out your purpose even before you know him. And then Paul goes on. It's in Christ that you are free, a reminder that we will get everything God has planned for us, a praising and glorious life. Now I want you to notice that Paul doesn't say we're going to get everything we deserve or everything we've ever wanted, because this is not about material things. This is not about cars and houses or spouses, marriage, money. No, everything that God has planned for us is a praising and glorious life. A glorious life, a flourishing life, is one spent thanking God for all that we have, despite how meager or how much. It's a life that's outward focused. It's a life that is intent and committed to love and unity and service and peace. When we recognize who we are and for whose purpose we are working, and we throw all of our innate skills and strengths and gifts to that end, then we're in the flow. And there's a lot of really interesting research in psychology today about being in the flow. You've all experienced, probably at some point in your lives, that feeling of being in the flow, of having just so, being so immersed in something that you have no distractions. You don't hear somebody else's cell phone ringing. You don't hear the noise in the background. You don't notice the kids screaming in the living room or the husbands talking to each other, whatever. You can be so immersed in productivity that there's no room for outside interference. Well, researchers say that we're in the flow when we operate out of our life's purpose and within areas that we find personally meaningful. It's in the flow, they say, that we don't fall prey to some of the things that plague us when we're living a life without meaning. Specifically, they say, when we are in the flow, we aren't restless, we don't feel inadequate, we don't engage in negative self-talk, and we aren't bored. 
boredom, it turns out, is a tipping point for us. When we're bored, these researchers have found we have two choices. We either find something compelling to engage in that gives us energy and we want to persist in it, and it gives us a zest for life, or we descend into our addictions, watching TV, technology, the internet, food, coffee, exercise, hanging out, whatever it is, it turns out we can be addicted to all sorts of things in our quest to avoid boredom. Now I wanna add one more little piece of research here, and this is a really practical one for anybody who cares about youth, which I believe is probably all of us. The National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University polled a large group of teenagers and parents, thousands of them, and they found that teen substance abuse has three predictors. High stress, too much spending money, and frequent boredom. These are the things that contribute to substance abuse in teenagers. Bored teenagers, it found out, are 50% more likely to smoke, drink, and use illegal drugs. The studies highlight that at the core of addiction is a search for significant experiences, an escape from boredom, and a longing for the rush that comes from consuming the substance of choice, whatever it might be. So addiction, it seems, is a pseudo search for meaning. It's a replacement for having little or no compelling purpose in your life. Now, things like sports and art and music and academics are all great ways to help kids avoid boredom. But the best way I know of to help them find meaning and purpose is to engage in activities that nurture their connection to God. Observing God in nature, taking part in acts of service, doing something for others, feeling connected to something. Right? And I have to think that's the best way I know of for all of us. For all of us. So, to wrap it up, know your strengths and put them to good use. And by good use, I mean hunting down something bigger than yourself to engage in, something larger than you think that you alone could even do. Maybe based on your strengths, your purpose is delivering food to people in need. Maybe it's going back to school to get that degree. Maybe it's starting a tutoring program for kids or spreading hope and love in new and creative ways. Maybe it's flying supplies to Ukraine. We know someone who's doing that right now. Whatever it might be, engage in something that you are using your strengths to do. And then know that you can do that thing, that hard thing, because God planted that seed in you, in you specifically and God will make sure that that good work is completed. And when that good work is completed, find another one, and another one, and another one. This is the way we string together a life of purpose, one meaningful undertaking 
at a time. And before you know it, you're flourishing. Let us pray.